just want to ask that you'll just help us to hear your word. You'll help us to apply your word. And you'll help us to live your word out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in life it's not always good to be considered an expert. Not always. For instance, I once read the story of a minister who gave up his seat on a bus to a drunken soldier. And this soldier in his drunken state had been staggering around the bus's passageway, bumping into people, stepping on toes. And corners as a result of that, various critical comments and certainly arising the wrath of many of the passengers. So the minister gave him his seat and, thank you minister, said the inebriated warrior as he crumpled into the seat. You're the only person on this bus who understands what it's like to be drunk. <laughs> However, as we all know, learning life's positive skills at the hands of an expert, that is always a good thing. It's always good to be taught by an expert. Well, what we have here in Acts 14 is really something of a, a masterclass in evangelism, given primarily by Paul, but with the help and involvement of Barnabas, where they give us lessons, not just in how to do evangelism, but also lessons in how we should conduct ourselves as we evangelize, and also how we should handle whatever comes our way during the course of our evangelism. And of course, it all happens in the context of, of their expulsion from Pisidian Antioch. And the mission that then follows on from that, first to Iconium and later to Lystra and Derba. But just to give you an idea again of the kind of setting and geography, we've got a slide we can put up so that kind of shows you. If you go to the right over to that side, the right hand there, you get the you get Syria and you see the, the original Antioch there and you see the big long journeys they went to Cyprus. But here if you go up maybe more into the centre of the picture, you've got the region of Pisidia, you've got Antioch there and it shows you the distances they travel to go to Iconium, then on to Lystra and then on to Darba. So it gives you a, a kind of a, a rough idea of what's going on and really what we're talking about there is that area now is, is basically Turkey that we're talking about, that region that they're in at that point. So that's, well just keep it up Paul so folk can have a look for a minute, all the folk who are interested in, in geography. But the journey from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium that you see there would have involved a trek of close on to 100 miles. And then when they arrived, the city of Iconium itself was set on a plateau between two mountain ranges, uh, the Taurus and the Sultan Mountains. The city at this time was a centre of agriculture and of business. Culturally, it was a Greek city. Though today on this site is actually to be found Turkey's fourth largest city of Konya. But Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium and we're told that they go to the synagogue as usual. Yes, for despite that the harsh treatment at the hands of the Jews that they just suffered at Pisidian Antioch, still they make the synagogue here their first port of call. That's because they know that there is a God awareness in the synagogue. 
among many of the Jews who would be there, and certainly among many of the, the Gentile God-fearers who searched for God had already drawn them there to the synagogue. They found, they believed there was a God awareness, as we said, and as they got there, they found it as they believed it to be. It proved to be what they'd hoped for. Told here in verse 1 that there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. It's in what follows, though, that we get our first lesson in this evangelism masterclass. And it is opposition. Opposition. That is that wherever the gospel is effectively shared, whenever it's shared, there will be opposition. Verse 2, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brother. That was true in the days of Acts. That was true in the days of the early church. And it has been true throughout history right up to the present day that effective witness, effective evangelism brings opposition. Now there's an obvious satanic spiritual dimension in at the root of this. But, but in my experience, from the purely human perspective, it seems to me that there are usually two main reasons why people oppose the gospel. One is pride. Pride, quite simply, that people do not like to be told that they are sinners whose sin makes them unacceptable to God. They don't like to be told that they can't work their way to acceptance with God, that they can't earn their way to heaven, that even the very best things that we do are to some degree tainted by the sin that's rooted in at the very heart of who we are. And they don't like to be told that we have to humble ourselves and put our trust, put our faith in God's grace, in the fact that God, the one who is the maker of heaven and earth, that he came to this earth to be born as a man, that he was put to death on that cross, that Easter cross, at the hands of men, all so that his sinless life could be offered up as the sacrifice for all our sin. Proud people don't want to be told this. This is the message that they do not want to hear. Now one particular example of this in our day that's, that's notable, I think particularly because of the extent of its influence, is the fierce opposition of some intellectuals to God and the gospel. And what's interesting, I think what's fascinating, is that these are almost always the opinions that are focused on in the media, by the media, for reasons of their own perhaps we'll touch on in a moment. But you know, when you watch or you listen or you read the opinions of these people, there is a bitterness that tells you that their problems with God are actually more than intellectual. There's a personal dimension to this. That these are proud people who are angry that others might believe in that there might even be a God who's greater, who has more knowledge than they have. One example of this, of course, is the, the scientist Richard Dawkins, a man whose opposition 
to the idea of there being a, a creator God has led the media to dub him the apostle of evolution. In 1996, though, many of his arguments against God were shown to be logically flawed by Keith Ward, who's the professor of divinity at Oxford University. And I'll tell you what is interesting is I don't think I've ever heard of a series on television devoted to Keith Ward's arguments against Richard Dawkins. Nor has there since that time been any kind of sign of a reduced use of or confidence in Richard Dawkins and his opinions. So pride then leads to opposition to God. The supercharged pride of many so-called intellectuals leads to fierce opposition, fear encouragement. Uh, I have to tell you that there are though intellectuals, even those who have been opponents of the gospel at one time in their life, who have been ready to humble themselves. Two noteworthy examples of a number that could be given. One is uh, C.E.M. Jode, who was head of uh, the philosophy department at London University. And he believed that Jesus was only a man and that there was no such thing as sin. And that given time, that man would have heaven on earth, that we would build heaven on earth. In 1948, the magazine section of the Los Angeles Times carried a picture of this scholar and with it a statement about a dramatic change in his life. And he told how he'd been antagonistic towards Christianity for many years. But now he had come to believe that sin was an undeniable reality. That the only explanation for sin was found in the Bible and the only solution in the cross of Jesus Christ. And then there's another man, Morten, Mortimer Adler, a renowned American philosopher, a man who spent much of his time, his life, thinking about God and religious topics. In his 1976 autobiography, Philosopher at Large, he wrote that religious commitment would require a radical change in my way of life and that the simple truth of the matter is that I do not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. In 1980, he published another book called How to Think About God, a guide for the 20th century pagan. In this, he strongly argued for God's existence, but he still drew back from any real personal commitment. Later in his life, though, he said that the thinking that he did in writing this book was influential in my becoming a Christian in 1984. There is hope then. But pride is one reason for many people's opposition to the gospel. Another is morality. That many people don't like the thought of there being a God who they're answerable to for the way they live their lives. And I think it was the English writer Aldous Huxley who very honestly said something along, along the lines that that is why he and, and the circle around him were so eager to embrace the concept of evolution. Because it allowed them to live the way that they wanted. It allowed them to form a new morality. And you can see 
the thinking. Evolution equals no creator God. No God equals no moral restrictions. And incidentally, I believe that's why the media, etc., are, are so keen to support Richard Dawkins and other champions of evolution. Because they too don't want there to be a God who challenges their morality. But you see, as we look around at our world today, as we see where we've got to following this philosophy over the last 50 years and more, as we look at the moral mess that our nation now is in, well, we can see just where this new morality has got us. That's the first lesson, though, in this evangelism masterclass. Opposition. That there will always be opposition to the sharing of the gospel. The second is humility. If you see Paul and Barnabas as a result of this opposition and an accompanying threat to their safety, they flee from Iconium to the relatively nearby smaller towns, first of Lystra and then Derba. And again in Lystra they, they preach the gospel and again God empowers them to work a miracle to establish the power and the authority of the gospel. A man who's lame from birth is made to walk again. It's here, though, that this problem comes in. In the reaction to this, of this onlooking crowd. For they begin to cry out in their own language. And naturally enough, Paul and Barnabas don't understand what they're saying. When they, though, begin to act on their words, well, instantly the significance of this dawns on Paul and Barnabas. These men are getting ready to sacrifice to them. They are being viewed as, treated as, gods. Now let me just say here that this reaction isn't quite as bizarre as we maybe at first glance might think. For remember, these were simple country people. Living at a time and in a place where superstition was rife. And we actually know from the, the writings of the Roman poet Ovid that there was a legend that was local to this region that at some time in the past they had been visited by the two gods who are mentioned here, Zeus and Hermes, that in disguise they'd come to their area, that they'd looked for hospitality, but that they'd been rebuffed a thousand times. Eventually they were offered lodging in a tiny little cottage by an elderly couple, Philemon and Baucus. And later, the gods rewarded them, but they destroyed by flood the homes that wouldn't take them in. But you see, put all this together. Simple people, local legend, two strangers appearing in their town, doing miracles. And what do you get? These people here think that they're being revisited by the same gods and they are anxious not to make the same mistake and to suffer the same fate as their forefathers. But you know, just think of how Paul and Barnabas could have used this. Of how in, in worldly terms, material terms, they could have turned this to their advantage. You see, if they'd gone along with this, there would have been temples built in their honour in no time. 
And they would have lacked for nothing for the rest of their lives. This could have been their meal ticket. And certainly we've come across characters already in Acts for whom this would have been the answer to their dreams and their lifetime ambition. Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8, Bar-Jesus Elymas in Acts 13, but not Paul and Barnabas. Rather, they were horrified that they, mere men, that they should be given God's glory and God's worship. As Jews by heritage, they believed in one true God, God who alone is worthy of worship, which is part of our common Christian heritage too. And they then were horrified. I want to say to you, so should we be horrified. Whenever in the churches evangelism, witness, or any kind of ministry, whenever the impression that we're left with, whenever the focus falls on a man or woman, if we walk away or turn our television sets off saying, you know, how great that person is. What a show that was. I tell you, the warning bells, I believe, should at least begin to ring. That's the second lesson in this masterclass of evangelism. Humility. That those who truly are sharing the true message and gospel of Christ in the power of His Spirit will do so in humility. The third lesson is relevance, that, that Paul here made his message relevant to the people that he was speaking to. Now you find that this message in verse 15 to 17 in response to the idolatry of these people. But, but look at it and notice just how very different it is to the message that Paul preached in Acts 13 to the educated religious Jews and Gentiles of Pisidian Antioch. You see, there in Acts 13, he centered and focused on Old Testament teaching, on the history of Israel and, and prophecy and the law. But you see, here in this context, he's speaking in the main to irreligious Gentile pagans who know little or nothing of the Old Testament and its God. And so you see, Instead of speaking of that, which they do not know, he instead starts with that which they do know and that which they can see. So he speaks of God as creator, in verse 15, of heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. He tells them that this God has not left himself without testimony. That though in the past, apart from Israel, he largely, verse 16 says, let the nations go their own way, yet he has shown his love for them in his kindness, giving them rains and crops, thus providing them with food for their bodies and filling their hearts with joy. Now it may well be that Paul then went on to share the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Certainly, these men had already been told something of that good news, as, as verse 15 makes clear. But you see, what he's focusing on here, what he's trying to 
open these men up to their minds up to these men who just tried to to worship him as a, a false god as an idol what he's trying to open their minds up to is a basic awareness of the majesty the uniqueness and the glory of god that will save them from committing this grievous sin here of idolatry and that will lay the ground prepare the way for the gospel of the great creator God to later be shared and understood. And Paul was, to a limited extent, successful here. He was. For these people were stopped from sacrificing to them. But it was only just. Only just. Verse 18. It says, even with these words, they had difficulty in keeping the crowd from sacrificing to him. You see, their superstition, then it would seem, was so deeply entrenched, which we'll see later helps in part to explain what the actions that we see just in a few minutes. But that's our third lesson then in relation to evangelism. Relevance. That Paul always sought to make his presentation of the gospel message relevant to the people he was sharing with. And I believe, so too should we. But you know, I don't believe that this is a lesson that the church has always fully really taken on board. There's encouragement around in our day, there is, because more and more there are training courses, help around to, geared up to help Christians to share their faith in a relevant way. And that is sharing our faith in a way that starts from where people are and that then builds bridges from where they are, to the gospel, so we can preach the gospel. But, you know, let me be clear here. We're not talking about changing the message of the gospel. The core message of the gospel must always remain intact. Now, what we're talking about is about thoughtfully and carefully and sensitively preparing the ground for the sharing of the gospel. And then when we share it, seeking to share it in a way that's as helpful as it can be to those we are sharing it with. But, you know, just trotting out mountains of text with no real attempt to, to relate to the life of the other person, no real attempt to, to see where they are and try to find a way of sharing in a relevant way. Well, that's not relevant evangelism. And it's highly unlikely to be productive or effective evangelism either. A fourth lesson in this master class is fickleness. Seen here in, in the fickleness of this crowd at Lystra. For you see, this crowd here who one day are ready to worship Paul and Barnabas are the very next day persuaded by the Jewish opponents that, that come to attack Paul and Barnabas, persuaded to turn against and to actually join in stoning Paul. Uh, it seems incredible. But that is what we're told here happened. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But you know, is this really as incredible as it seems? Is it really for many of these people might have felt a bit hurt and rejected, even maybe a little bit angered 
by Paul and Barnabas' refusal to allow them to worship them. That was never the attention, but it could have been the, the way that they received what was shared with them. And if so, they may then have been even further angered by Paul's statement here in verse 15 that they should turn from these worthless things to the living God. You know, they might say, hey, listen, these men are, are, are belittling us. They're insulting our gods. They're insulting our traditions. And by so doing and by what they're saying, they're making us out to be fools. Now, if this was so, and if, as verse 18 certainly implies, these people hadn't actually responded to the gospel, well then, is it really so surprising that when these Jews come to them and undoubtedly told them that, that Paul and Barnabas were liars, imposters, maybe even sorcerers, is it so surprising then that they should seize the opportunity to turn on them, or at least to turn on Paul, perhaps because he was the one available and certainly was the, the most prominent of the two? Should we, though, really be surprised by this? Find it incredible when we remember the experience of Jesus on this Palm Sunday. When we remember that the same crowd that welcomed him into Jerusalem with their hosannas were all too ready just a few days later to raise those same voices to demand his execution. Now I tell you, we shouldn't be surprised by at times the incredible fickleness of people. Instead, I believe we should prepare, be prepared for it. For this is something that we will encounter when we're actively engaged in sharing our faith. Because you see, you can be involved in, in sharing with people over a long period of time and you can seek to do it in the most relevant way you can to them. You can build bridges into their lives and you can think and maybe you are really getting there in terms of making Jesus real to them and then suddenly all the gains seem to be lost they seem to be as far if not further away from Jesus than they ever were and you wonder what's gone wrong well it could be fear of commitment you know, a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus and all that he brings. It could be pressures from other people, from family and from friends. It could be any one of a myriad of other things. But I want to tell you this. If you want to be involved in sharing your faith and evangelism and witness, and if you're a Christian, I tell you, you should. Then you need to be prepared for the fickleness of people. Be ready for it. And be ready then to persevere. Be ready to commit yourself to the long haul. Because that's the only way that we'll see people one to Christ. Which brings us on to our final lesson in Paul's masterclass, which appropriately is faithfulness. And what better example of faithfulness could we ever ask for than the Apostle Paul? For here he is, stoned, beaten almost to the point of death. His attackers actually thought 
he was dead. Maybe the disciples too thought he was near death. So they, they gather around him here to give him a final benediction. When in answer to their prayers, Paul rises, more probably staggers to his feet. And they then go back into the city where they spend the night, no doubt, tending his wounds. Now I tell you, this incident must be what we find referred to in Paul's long list of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. Just verse 24, an excerpt where you know, he says there, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with stones. Sorry, with rods. Once I was stoned. And probably this was the inspiration behind his words in 2 Corinthians 4, 9 and 10. We are persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our body. And you know, very soon after this incident, Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. And we find contained within Galatians, in Galatians 6, 17, this comment, where Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Surely among these must have been the maybe still healing scars of this attack at Lystra. But you know, what is, I find truly amazing is what we read in the final sentence here of this passage. The next day, he and Barnabas set out for Derba. Well, let's be clear here. What we're talking about here isn't a pleasant, recuperative afternoon stroll. This was a 60-mile slog through rough country that Paul and Barnabas set out on. But think about it again. The day before, Paul had been beaten nearly to death for preaching the gospel. Here, the next day, he's setting out on a 60-mile foot slog. Why? In order to preach that same gospel. You know, no wonder G.H. Jowett said, I once saw the track of a bleeding hair across the snow. That was Paul's track across Europe, marked by blood. But it was this faithfulness, it was this degree of commitment. It's because his heart was so one for Jesus Christ. It was this that made Paul into the man that God was able to use to bring countless men and women to Christ to build Christian communities throughout much of the then known world. So the cost for Paul, yes, it was great. But you know, if he was standing here, I'm sure he would be saying, you know, but could there ever be anything better, anything greater than knowing that you'd be used by God in this way. Can there be any greater privilege in life? Can there be anything that would ever bring greater fulfillment in life 
than to be used by God like this. So I say, may God help us to learn the lessons of evangelism that we learn from Paul, the master evangelist here. And may God then use us here in our situation as he wills. May he use us to also build his church and bring glory to the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for just everything you teach us in your word and just that incredible example of Paul. Oh Lord, we just, we have to remember that Paul, he was a man like us. He was a human being like we are. What made Paul different was the fact that he gave his life without reservation to you. He held nothing back. He lived out his faith all the way. Lord, help us to be ready to do the same. Give us courage. Give us hunger. Give us desire. Move in our hearts in the power of your spirit. Capture us in the same way that you captured him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.